Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, or welcome back if you're a returning listener. Episode 3, Gildas, the last Romano-Britain. In this episode, we'll be taking a break from a chronological progression to look at the main written source for sub-Roman Britain and the early Saxon migrations. That source is, as already mentioned in episode 1, on the ruin and conquest of Britain. This text, which is both hugely important and frustratingly complicated to use, was written by a British monk called Gildas, and to fully appreciate what it tells us, we need to look at it as the product of his unique mind. We know very little about Gildas himself. A couple of hagiographies, that is, saints' lives, were written about him, but not until several centuries after he lived. They provide quite a bit of information about him and his life, but it all needs to be treated as suspect on account of when they were written. The only things we can say with some confidence about Gildas are that he was born in the same year as the Battle of Baden Hill, which isn't that useful since we don't actually know what year the Battle of Baden Hill took place, that he was writing some 44 years after the battle, and that he had some kind of connection with the British migrants in Brittany, where he was buried and allegedly founded a monastery. Besides these few nuggets of information, we know nothing for certain about Gildas himself. Traditionally, his work is dated to the mid-6th century. More recent scholars have begun to suggest earlier dates, though. Recently, it's been suggested that he wrote in 535 to 536, since he may reference the extreme weather that affected the Northern Hemisphere in that year. It's also been suggested that the style of Gildas's writing suggests a date in the earlier 6th century, or possibly even the very late 5th century. Unless the weather theory is correct, then we must settle for saying that Gildas wrote at some point between 500 and 550. Everything else must be deduced from his writing style and the profound influence that the Roman legacy in Britain had on him. On the Ruin and Conquest of Britain is not actually a work of history, despite its often being used as a historical source. Rather, it is a moralistic letter recounting the causes of the present calamities in Britain, chief among those calamities being the conquests of the Saxons. Gildas places blame for those calamities squarely at the feet of the Britons themselves, who he presents as at turns immoral, rebellious and cowardly. But by what standard does Gildas judge the Britons? To answer this, we need to look at how he makes his argument. On the Ruin and Conquest of Britain is a deeply rhetorical piece of work. By rhetorical, I mean rhetorical in the classical sense of the skill of composing a speech and later a text, 
in a way that can persuade and motivate the listeners and readers. Classical rhetoric was concerned with the effect the choice and arrangement of words had on people. And Gildas's frequent use of rhetorical techniques throughout On the Ruin and Conquest of Britain indicates that he had received training in the Roman art of rhetoric. An example of this is the almost robotic way in which he frames events. British history, as told by Gildas, consists of a cycle of defeat, followed by a resurgence under a strong leader, and then a general fall into sinfulness, all of which is meant to provoke contrition in the reader. Hi listeners, I wanted to take a second to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, restaurant-quality, and dietitian approved and it's all ready to go in two minutes with minimal meal prep. I've had some fantastic meals like butter chicken and tomato risotto with Factor, and I've got to say I've been extremely impressed with all of them. They genuinely are restaurant quality. You'll get over 35 different options to choose from every week if you try out Factor, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, with pancakes, smoothies, and more, there's over 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and ready to go throughout the day. Factor also works around your schedule. You can order as little or as much as you need each week, and they even let you reschedule deliveries any time of when those unexpected somethings happen to pop up. And to top it all off, Factor is cheaper than ordering takeout, so it really is a smart move to try it out. Get started today and get after your goals. If you're interested in trying Factor, head to factormeals.com slash anglo50 and use code anglo50 to get 50% off. That's code anglo50 at factormeals.com slash anglo50 to get 50% off. The more we read the text, the more it becomes clear that Gildas wasn't just influenced by Roman rhetorical techniques. The political language in which he speaks is saturated with Roman suppositions. For example, he frequently divides the people of Britain into three camps, citizens, enemies and scoundrels, terms often used in the language of Roman politics. Similarly, he frequently equates virtue with law and order as personified in rightful imperial rule. His account of Magnus's rebellion in 383, for example, is entirely negative and is cast as only the most recent attempt by the Britons to rebel against proper Roman authority. He makes a similar point about Boudicca's rebellion, but in that case it is also combined with a very Roman distaste for women openly wielding political power. With that focus on imperial authority in mind, it's no surprise that the closest person to a hero in On the Ruin and Conquest of Britain is the enigmatic Ambrosius Aurelianus, who Gildas tells us led the Britons to victory over the Saxons at Baden Hill, and who was also born, quote, in the purple, a reference to Ambrosius's family having some kind of senatorial rank, thus making him a representative of the rightful Roman government. In contrast to Ambrosius are the five contemporary rulers singled out for criticism later in the letter. The five, all called tyrants, are accused of various crimes, but most conspicuously inciting civil war and impiety. Gildas accuses them of violating all manners of human and divine laws. It is for this reason that they are called tyrants, since they set themselves up as being outside of the law, while a rightful ruler like Ambrosius is a defender of the law. The rebuke of the five tyrants 
also offers another good example of Gildas's rhetorical training. He orders the list by increasing sinfulness, so that the first tyrant, Constantine, is guilty of fairly minor sins compared to the last one, Melgun, who is the most sinful of them all. Gildas refers to each of the men metaphorically as one of the apocalyptic beasts from the books of Daniel and Revelation, highlighting also Gildas's Christianity and his view that the rising sinfulness is a prelude to the Last Judgment. So let's recap. Gildas is clearly rhetorically trained and apparently has some knowledge of the imperial government that he holds up as an ideal. This indicates a Roman education, which suggests that such was still possible to find in sub-Roman Britain in either the late 5th or the early 6th century. Despite the changes that had occurred in Britain since 406, Gildas's worldview was deeply Roman, and it clearly shaped his political outlook on contemporary events. In particular, Gildas seems to abhor the tyrants making war on other tyrants, a disgust that lays bare his ideal that rightful imperial rule will bring law and peace, as Ambrosius Aurelianus did, while the native wickedness of the Britons will bring only war. It's hard not to see in Gildas's attacks on the tyrants a Roman idealist's horror at the rise of warlords who took power through violence and kept it through distributing the spoils of war to their followers. Such systems begin to crop up all over Western Europe at this time. It's also interesting to note that Gildas also names three successor kingdoms, Gwynedd, Dyved and Dumnonia, indicating that these had come into existence in some form by the early to mid-6th century. With all that being said, it should be apparent why I chose to call Gildas the last Romano-Britain. Despite what we would expect from a writer of sub-Roman Britain, Gildas is deeply Roman in his outlook, and it is essential to the letter that he wrote. This outlook leads to what we could argue is an undeniably negative portrayal of the Britons and their history, and this becomes particularly problematic when we consider that despite Gildas not actually writing a work of history, his letter has gone down as the most influential source for the history of Britain in the 5th and 6th centuries. Through its extensive use by Bede in his Ecclesiastical History of the English People, it forged the narrative of early British history for many centuries. When Bede used it, he did so to demonstrate the divine will behind the Saxons' conquest of Britain. Even a Briton like Gildas, he said, saw how wicked his people were and recognised divine punishment in their troubles. From 793 onwards, Gildas's work took on a new meaning, with the beginning of the Viking Age. The English monk Alcuin, in his letter discussing the sack of Lindisfarne in that year, invoked Gildas as a warning that something like this had occurred before. Even later, in the early 11th century, Wolfstan of York made Gildas's account of the Saxon conquests central to his own call for moral reform in English society, his famous Sermon of the Wolf to the English, in which he, like Alcuin, drew a direct parallel between the Saxons' conquest of the Britons and the Danes' conquest of the English. Gildas's fame as the historian of sub-Roman Britain declined somewhat after 1066, when Anglo-Norman writers like Geoffrey of Monmouth composed the first versions of the Legend of King Arthur, which cast the Britons in a far more positive light, in an attempt to undermine Anglo-Saxon rebelliousness. Despite this, though, Gildas still remains the main written source for this period. As a result, it is essential that his work is understood as a product of his unique worldview. We have no way of knowing how reflective his views were of those of other Britons at this time.
but even if he was just a lone voice in the wilderness, his letter and its strong moral message hugely influenced the way that the Anglo-Saxons understood their own history, and later, how they understood the troubles of the Viking Age. Thank you for listening. This has been a somewhat shorter than usual episode, but I wanted to focus specifically on Gildas to give you a basis in understanding who he is and what he said. This has been the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. I am your host, Tom Kearns, and thank you for listening. I hope you will come back next time for the Adventus Saxonum. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.